0: Well, as I said before, today is the last week in our series on Habakkuk. Um, If you want to turn there um, with us, it's page 834 on the Pew Bible right in front of you, or you can follow along um, through our Brentwood Bible app. You can go to Sunday Services. It'll take you to the Scripture, and it'll take you right there. Um, And as we've gone through Habakkuk, I think, at least for me, it's felt like it was written for our day, like what we're experiencing in our lives right now. There's injustice, there's suffering, there's violence and nations being conquered and nations falling apart. Um, The rich are taking advantage of those less fortunate, which at the beginning led to Habakkuk's question, right? How long is it going to be like this? God, are you even there? Are you even paying attention? Are you going to keep your word? And then we get this back and forth between God and Habakkuk. And God tells Habakkuk basically that justice is coming, um, first for Israel and their disobedience through the Babylonians, um, which Habakkuk doesn't like um, how God is going to bring about justice. And he's like, well, you can't use a nation that's more wicked than us to judge us. Um, how is that even possible? And God again responds, Um, justice will come it won't be late and it will come for everyone for israel for babylon and even for us and the only way to be found on god's side is to live by faith which we talked about when we went through um, the beginning of chapter two that there's a sliver of hope um, that the righteous will live by faith kind of hidden in the middle of habakkuk And so last week, we looked at the first part of Habakkuk's final response, and his response came in the form of a prayer, right? He spent the majority of his time recounting and remembering how God had worked in the history of Israel. And today, we're going to wrap up the book and Habakkuk's prayer. The first part of his prayer was filled with historical events and truths about God, but today we're going to see his response to those truths about God. So we're going to see, has Habakkuk changed his mind about God's plan for Israel and the world? does Habakkuk understand what God is doing? And what does that understanding even look like? And I don't know if you're supposed to do this as a pastor, but to be honest this week, um, I'm not 100% sure how we apply this to our lives and actually do it. Um, Most weeks I'm pretty confident, I'm pretty sure like, hey, this is the principle, this is what it looks like, this is how it applies, this is what it actually looks like in our daily lives. Um, I'm clear on the principles and kind of what it might look like, but how we actually do this on a day-to-day basis, I don't have all the answers for you this morning. Um, I don't really ever have all of the answers, Um, but we're going to work through it together and you'll kind of see what I mean. So let's read it together, Um, Habakkuk 3, 16 through 19. And it says this, I heard, and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen, and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will re- celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. And then we have this thing for the choir director on stringed instruments. And so I think what happened is um, the Israelites actually turned this last chapter into a song. Um, and they sang it regularly as they gathered, like you would, they would sing the Psalms. And so here we see Habakkuk's final words, and these sound much different than the beginning of the book, where he's asking, how long, God, are you going to do this? Are you even paying attention? And even different from last week, where we just see him recounting what God has done, right? We see this change in him. At the beginning, he was a little bold and a little impatient. He called God out. He demanded answers. And even last week, it was more about the facts of what God has done. It was about remembering and recentering himself on the history of God's work. But now we see he's transformed. He's calm. He's quiet. He's waiting. Instead of asking when God will act, he is waiting patiently and expectantly, expectantly for God to act, even rejoicing in the midst of it. And his response is centered in two statements. Um, the first one is I will wait quietly. And the second one is, I will rejoice. And I would argue that what we're really seeing here is Habakkuk telling us that no matter the circumstances, he has resolved, he has decided that he will worship God. But how does he make that shift from impatient questioning to patiently waiting and worshiping? And that's the part I'm still working through. Right? We might be tempted to say, well, it seems obvious how I do that. I just need to remember what God has done, and I trust, and then I worship him. But how do you actually do that? Can you just decide to do that? Like, I just decided to do it this afternoon. Can I just decide that on my own? Does there need to be a motivation behind it? Or how do I know what I'm actually worshiping? Am I worshiping God, or am I worshiping something else? Because when we think about worship, um, worship basically means you're assigning worth to something, you're assigning value to something. And so we worship what we assign value to. The more we value it, the more we worship it. The more you work for it, the more you care for it, the more you try to keep it, the more you sacrifice for it. So if you're worshiping money, you're always trying to make more. You may change jobs more often than other people because that's the fastest way to make more money to get promotions is to move from company to company. You may step on other people to get ahead. You may take, make some questionable practices. You may be looking into get-rich-quick schemes because I need to make money the fastest I possibly can because that's what you're worshiping. Or maybe it's success, which may turn you into a workaholic or hiding your weaknesses or faults or blaming others for your mistakes because you would never do anything wrong. It's always somebody else's fault. Or maybe you're worshiping yourself and you're just out to get whatever you want. And that sometimes looks malicious and selfish and sometimes it doesn't look as malicious and selfish but we all worship something, I think, in every moment. You're trying to get something. You're assigning value to something. And I think what we see in Habakkuk is that these hard times reveal what we trust in and what we worship, right? That's when we can really see maybe more clearly. So what do we turn to in challenging times? What do we do for comfort to make it through? What are we frustrated by? There is hope this morning at the end of a what I think is a challenging book, but <clears throat> I think Somebody called it a hidden gem in the Old Testament, right? Most people don't talk about this. They don't read it. They never heard a sermon series on it, but I think it's a great book. But how can we take hold of that hope and convert it to worship, right, to a new mindset? That's what we're really trying to understand today. So we're going to take the two parts um, and see what we can learn from them. And so first, we're going to see that we can worship while we wait for God. First, in verse 16 I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. And so this is Habakkuk's physical reaction to what God is doing and saying to him in this book. It basically says he's wasting away. Um, This rottenness in my bones basically means he's decaying on the spot, right? Like as he sits there, he can feel his bones kind of weakening. His stomach is churning. His bones are weak. And I <clears throat> definitely identify with this idea of stomach is churning. Um, our family has a history of, <clears throat> excuse me. I promise you guys it's 10.30 every Sunday is when I start coughing, and it's only from 10.30 to 11 o'clock or 11 o'clock to whenever I get finished. Um, part of it is you guys make me nervous. I'm just kidding. Um, but our, my family has a history of a little stress and a little anxiety, and when that happens, it results in stomach issues. Um, and so anytime before something important is happening or a decision needs to be made or a big event, we kind of all have stomach issues. And so I can identify with this, of a physical reaction to something happening in your life. And so the message that Habakkuk has heard is that judgment is coming. The nation of Israel will be conquered. They will be exiled by a brutally violent nation. It will happen. It is coming. And God's judgment is bigger than just Israel, right? All will receive God's judgment for their actions. And he knows what's coming, but he can't do anything about it. Right, this led to his physical symptoms. All I can do, which is what we see next, right? I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. He knows all he can do is wait. All he can do is wait for Israel to be conquered all they can do wait is wait for Babylon to receive justice. Um, there is some difference of opinion on what the second part of that means. Does it mean he's waiting for Israel to be conquered? Or does it mean he's waiting for Babylon to get what's coming to them? Um, if you've followed through the book, both of those fit with what Habakkuk is saying. But either way, he's going to have to wait for it. But there's something, I think, in how he waits that I think we can learn from. Notice it says, he waits quietly. Right, so when we're waiting for God or we're waiting for others, we should also wait quietly. And waiting, I think, it's a choice, sort of, if you think about it. You can be forced to wait, or you can just like charge ahead and say, I'm not waiting for anything. But when it comes to the circumstances of life, whether you're waiting on something or waiting for God to do something or for a decision or something from somebody else, you you must wait. But when we wait, like how do we actually do that? Are you good at waiting? Do you wait quietly? Or when you wait, is it full of impatience, right? I just need that phone call like yesterday to understand what's going on or to get my results or to hear about the job and I'm just impatient. Do you have doubt about the system? Like what's taking them so long? Um, What I usually do, when I'm not good at waiting is I figure out how they could be more efficient and I redesign their system for it. I was like, well, if they just did this, this, and this, then they could have called me two days ago because they would have had this finished already. Or sometimes as we're waiting, we get angry, right? And it's like, what's taking them so long? I need this now. Or we think, oh, I can fix this. I can change it. So we make phone calls. We make emails. We push to the front of the line. And we get angry at the situation or the people involved. That's waiting, but you're not really waiting quietly, Right? You're kind of dealing with it and just like, I just want to get this over with as fast as I can. And if I need to make noise to make it happen, that's what I'm going to do. But Habakkuk says, I must wait quietly for the Lord to act. Right? Quietly, I think, means he's full of trust. He's full of this resolution that God will act, that he's got it under control, <clears throat> that he knows what is coming. And this, this concept uh, made me think of a, a verse most of you are probably familiar with, Psalm 46, uh, 10, that says, be still and know that I am God, meaning we just sit and we wait and we know that he is God. But I read through the context of this verse because usually we just read this verse by itself and just it's like, oh, I just need to be quiet. But I read through it and I think it, it helps us actually connect the dots between what's happening in Habakkuk. Here are some phrases from Uh, 1 through 9 of Psalm 46. Though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the sea, though its water roars and foams and the mountains quake with its turmoil, the nations rage and kingdoms topple. Come see the works of the Lord who brings devastation on the earth. He makes wars cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He sets wagons ablaze be still and know that I am God. This is not like a guy sitting in a meadow with a peaceful surrounding, just kind of looking at God's creation saying, oh, just be still and take it all in. It's all quiet. It's all peaceful. It's all lovely. It's all beautiful. No, this is a guy who's seeing the world fall apart. And at the end of it, he says, be still and know that he is God. So for us, When we look around and we feel like the world is literally falling apart, day by day by day. And there's injustice and there's unfairness and there's nations falling apart. And there's military incursions and all the stuff that's wrapped up in everything that we see. There's hurricanes heading toward a city that they're now saying, if you stay here, you're probably not going to make it. Right? In the same city, this has happened not that long ago. When the world is falling apart, we're to be still and know that He is God. Know that God is in charge. Know that He is reigning. Know that He is powerful. And I think the way that we do this comes out of the verse we saw in chapter 2, which is to live by faith. Right? Faith in God's promises that He will do what He said He would do, He will be faithful. He will be there for us. <clears throat> God is going to do his thing. And all I need to do is to wait. Not worry, not be full of anxiety, not be full of fear, but a quiet resolve to wait as God does what he is going to do. And I think this is how we worship as we Wait. We're quietly trusting to God, that God will continue to work as he has always worked. I think the temptation, I, I think for some people, and, and maybe even for us, is when we say, well, I need to worship while I'm waiting, I think the temptation is to just detach ourselves from what we're waiting for and convince ourselves that what we're waiting for isn't important, right? And just say, that doesn't matter. Right? Because if I'm not supposed to focus on that, if I'm supposed to wait patiently, then it helps me to know that what I'm waiting for isn't important. But I'm not sure that's actually what he's saying. Because we don't see God like devalue work or family or other things in Scripture. We see him give value to those things. So those things are good. So he shouldn't just say, those are worthless, those are nothing, I don't care about those. That's not what we're looking for. We're just looking for trusting God in those moments. Right, that we assign the appropriate value and priority to what we're waiting for, that that call for test results, that that job offer, that whatever we're waiting for, yes, it's important. Yes, it could be valuable. Yes, it could be significant in our lives. But it's not more significant than what God is doing. It's not more significant than our faith in Him. So we just need to care in the right amount for those things. And so we can worship by waiting quietly and trusting in God. And then we have the second part, right, of rejoicing no matter the circumstances. So we can worship in any circumstance. That's what you think he's telling us. Even in hard times, and in verse 17, Habakkuk lists them out, right? He gives us a picture. This is what Israel is headed for. This is about to be what they experience when the Babylonians show up. Though the fig tree does not bud, there's no fruit on the vines, and the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food. Though the flocks disappear from the pen, and there are no herds in the stalls, what he's basically saying is, there's nothing to eat anywhere. We are literally starving to death. But then we get the next line in verse, the beginning of verse 18. Yet I will celebrate in the Lord. Right? There's no food, there's no delivery trucks coming, we're all starving, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. This is where it starts getting real for me and for us of how do you say that, right? How do you look at the world around you? How do you in like everything's caving in, I'm at the bottom of the barrel, but I will celebrate in the Lord. This is the part, like, I know intellectually how we can get there, but in reality, it's very difficult. And it made me think of Paul in Philippians 4 of the verse that, again, you will have heard this, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But if you look at the context of this verse, this is what actually says before that. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances I find myself I know how to make do with a little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? A similar concepts to what we're seeing in Habakkuk. Paul learned that whatever situation he was in, whether he was hungry, whether he was full, whether he was rich, or whether he was poor, whether he was with all his friends, or whether he was in prison, he could be content. He could trust in God. He could worship. And as you look at that example, you may say, kind of like I did this week, I can't do that. If I get thrown in prison and I've got nothing to eat, I'm probably not celebrating. I'm probably not worshiping. And I might be able to do that sometimes, but I don't think all the time. Which led me to the the challenging question that I spent a lot of time on this week is, do circumstances decide what we worship? Do your circumstances decide what you're actually worshiping? Because we can either focus on the circumstances around us or we can focus on what God is doing or how he's working or how he might be working. And I had a a pastor's meeting this week and we gathered together and I think most pastors are kind of feeling this thing and I've been feeling it a lot over the past few months is it's really easy as a pastor right now to look at who shows up on Sunday morning? And to say, well, these people that used to come aren't here, and these people aren't here, and these people aren't coming back, and these people left, and all this, and I don't know when this is going to end, and I don't know what's going on. But you know what that is it's looking at the circumstances. And so, admittedly, often, my mood about what's happening here is based on how I feel about the circumstances. And if I feel it's going well, then I have a good mood. But if I think, I don't know what's going to happen, I don't know if anybody's going to come back, then my mood is not so great. right? But that's me letting the circumstances dictate how I feel and how I worship and how I think about what God is doing. But we have to see past that. And I'm sure all of you have a similar example that based on what, if this happens or if this doesn't happen, if this decision gets made, if this gets canceled, if this, like, then your, your mood changes, what you think about changes significantly. Right? But we have to see past that. God is doing something. Right? Even in the midst of a pandemic where churches are kind of all over the place with what they're doing and how many people are back in person and how many people are staying home and how many people are saying, well, I didn't go for a year and I didn't miss it, so I'm not coming back. That's for our next series, by the way. We're going to talk about that a little bit in a few weeks. But God is doing something. I think God is actually doing something in the church and in the Christian community around us, even in this time. We may not understand it, and it may be painful, but I think he is molding and shaping us by what we are going through. And whatever you're going through, God is molding and shaping you to rely on Him and to trust in Him and to look to Him. And we actually, as I thought about it, we actually have these phrases, if you've grown up in church, built around trying to trust in God in all circumstances. We say things like, let go and let God. Or we say, God is in control. Or God's plan is perfect. And sometimes, because I'm a bit of a skeptic, I wonder if we just say those and have them because we don't really know what to say and we don't really know how to do what Habakkuk is asking us to do. And yes, some of those are true and I would argue maybe some of those things we say are not. But I think this is actually where we can do better as, as seasoned believers and for new believers. Go past the phrase, right? Go past the cliche and what are the next steps? Right? How do I actually know that God is in control? How do I actually trust that God is in control? What does that actually look like in my life? Can we explain that part of it? Can you tell somebody else how to do that? When the world is crashing in on them to say, God is in control, and this is how I know that, and this is how you can trust him, and this is how you can see that in your life, right? That's much more challenging than just giving a little phrase. How can we trust that God is in control? How do we know that God's plan is perfect? How can we trust Him at all times? Can you actually answer that? Not with just like four or five words, but with like explanations and biblical evidence. Like, can you see that? I think that's where we actually make ground. So how can we actually worship in any circumstance? I think Kabaka gives us the answer by giving us three things that God gives to us to enable us to be able to do this, to be able to worship in any circumstance. So this is where we, I think we start to get the answer, and it's not going to be surprising to you, but I think the hard part is actually doing these things. And so first we see him say, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation." We rejoice because God gives us salvation. We rejoice because I am saved. And I think sometimes we can forget when we've been Christians for a really long time, or we spend most of our time with other believers. We can't really remember a time before that. Or, like in my case, I was saved so young, there's not really a big difference between what my life looked like before and what it looked like after I became a Christian. There's not a big shift. You know, when you're five or six years old, it's not like you were doing all of these things you shouldn't be doing, and then you just stopped when you got saved. But I think it leads to kind of this false view about Christians that we weren't sinners, that we didn't do anything wrong, that we don't do anything wrong. Or maybe you're thinking, man, I can do enough. To get into heaven, I can can actually do enough. I'm a good enough person. I can give enough. I can serve enough. I can help the homeless enough. I can do these things enough, and I'll get in. But neither one of those is true, right? You are a sinner. Whether you remember that or understand that deeply or not, you also can't do enough. The good news is, it's not up to you to make it. Salvation is not nice people getting nicer or good people getting a little better. Salvation is taking dead people and making them alive. That's what happens in salvation. The Bible is clear that what we earn for our sin, for falling short of God's standard, is actually death. Not just physical death, but also spiritual death. And a dead person has nothing to contribute. Right? If you're dead, you can't do anything. You can't get up and walk, you can't do good things, you can't be like you're there's nothing. It requires an outside force to act upon you to bring you back to life. And that's what Jesus does for us. He does this spiritually and physically. We are spiritually resurrected and then we'll be physically resurrected. But I think this is where, at least for me, and, and I think for people who have been Christians a long time, I think this may be where we miss it. Is we think too little of our salvation and God's work in it. Because we think, I wasn't really that bad. I wasn't really doing anything that was really that wrong. So my salvation was good, but... Really wasn't a big deal. I didn't have to overcome all of these things. Right? But when we remember, you were dead. You were dead. And then you were made alive. Right? If we truly understood the depth of our sin and Jesus' sacrifice, then we could worship in all things. But I think it slips through our fingers. It becomes routine. It becomes mundane when we maybe hear it every week or think about it, we lose the impact of salvation in our lives. The next thing he gives us in verse 19, the Lord is my strength. Right? I can rejoice because he gives me strength. Right? I have nothing. And you may be saying that. My body is weak from age. I can't do the things I used to do. It's just not happening. My body just can't do it anymore. Or I'm just worn out from life, right? In our house, we have three kids and school just started, and I'm a little glad that they're back in school for most of the day, but getting everybody to and from where they're supposed to be all the time with a kid in elementary, middle school, and high school all at the same time, it's a lot to keep up with. And sometimes at the end of the day, you're just like, I'm just worn out from just life, from just being alive today. Or maybe you're weary from the pandemic and what it's done to you and how it's pulled you away from your friends or your community or what you're used to be doing. You're just like, I just want this to be over. I'm just tired. I just want it to be back to normal. Or you may be saying, even if I wanted to step up, even if I wanted to do more, even if I wanted to serve the church or talk to neighbors or whatever it is, I just couldn't do it because I don't have it. But that's what this is saying. God gives us the strength to do it. He gives us the ability to do it. There's a a verse, I think it's in in James, that says, um, when you serve, serve with the strength that God provides. We serve because God gives us the strength to do it. We're alive and walking around because God gives us the strength to do it. We can rejoice because the strength to make it through the day is given to us by God. He gives us the strength to thrive, the strength to serve, the strength to humbly serve God and others is given to us by God. He gives us what we need to do this. He gives us what we need to be able to rejoice And then he makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. I can make it through because God guides my steps. I can rejoice because he guides my steps. Are you here this morning or listening or watching and you're not sure what to do? You don't know what the next step is. You don't know what God wants you to do in your life or with your job or with retirement or whatever it may be. You just, I don't know what to do well, you pray. You seek God. Then you listen. Then you, this is the harder part, you obey whatever God tells you to do. And if the off chance, just for fun, I threw this one in, you could always ask your pastor for help. That's what he's here for. Um, So that might be something you could add to your list. But we can walk through, what he's saying here is you can walk through what's happening because God guides your steps no matter how difficult it is. And he gives this example of the deer running up the mountain. Now, if you ever watch a nature show, at some point they'll show these mountain goats. And you'll see this like cliff. And they'll just run up the side of it like it's nothing. Like as fast as they can, they'll change directions, they'll go back and forth. And just like, they're standing on something like this big. Like how do they do that? But that's the vision that Habakkuk wants us to see here. God can guide us so that going up the side of a cliff can go as easily and as quickly and as fast as those mountain goats up the side of the mountain. Those guys are not worried about falling. They are not slowing down. They know where they're going. They know what they're trying to do, and they just go. So God can do that for us. He can guide our steps. So even if it's the tiniest thing, We can trust in Him, that He can guide us to where we are supposed to go. We can make it. We can navigate the rugged terrain of life and not be afraid. And so I think what we see is that God's gifts to us, the gifts of salvation, of strength, and of guidance, and leading us in our steps should lead us to gratitude. Gratitude. Right? That gratitude of thankfulness for what He has done, of how He has saved us, how He has sacrificed His Son for us to live. And I think that gratitude, that thankfulness leads to worship. That we worship Him because of what He has given us and that we're thankful for that. And this is where it got hard for me to, to explain because that sounds easy, right? When I stand up in here and say, oh, God saved us. We should be thankful for that. We all, I think, understand what God has done for us. And we can be thankful and then to worship. That sounds easy. But I think when I thought about it in real life, it it feels a little like trying to hold water in your hands. Right? There's always a leak somewhere, and it quickly disappears. Right? It sounds so easy to focus on it. Well, I think it's so easy to focus on the circumstances of our lives instead of Jesus. It's so easy to be impatient, to demand action from others and from God. It's so easy to try to make things happen on our own. It's so easy to trust in my own strength. It's so easy to plan my own path. I do those instinctively before I even realize it, right? And that's where it gets hard. Deciding to worship in all circumstances with all of those temptations And that list, those are just the ones from ourselves. That doesn't take into account the world around you and everything that's coming at you from all these other directions. So, can't I just say, it's my duty? I'm supposed to do this because I'm a believer. Yes, I think you can say, I'm supposed to serve God, I'm supposed to worship, I'm supposed to wait because I'm a believer, and that's what believers are supposed to do. But I think if you took this situation and you told your spouse that same thing, they'd probably be upset with you. I'm doing this for you because it's my duty, because I'm supposed to. Right? That's not going to score you a lot of points in your marriage, in case you didn't know that. Because we want them to do it because they love us, which I think is the answer. Right? It's built on love. Love for Jesus Love because of what he has done, that he has made us alive as we trust in him to overcome our sins. Love that he has sought us out. Love that he opened our minds to receive the message of the gospel and faith. Love that he gives us the gift of faith and salvation. And so we worship because we love him. We are, or I think we should be, motivated by love. Jesus and what He has done for us, which I know is easier for some of us than others. But I think that's the answer, right? We love Jesus so much that we can trust, we can wait quietly, we can rejoice, we can celebrate, we can worship no matter what comes because we love him more than anything else. So the question I have to kind of bring all of this together, just to get you to think about this, and how we do this, and how we can worship in any circumstances is, do you love Jesus and value your salvation more than the things of this world? Do you love Jesus and Him giving you salvation more than the things of this world? And if not, why? What do you think the things of this world are going to get you that Jesus can't? And if you do love Him more than anything else, then worship at all times, in all circumstances. And if you find that you can't do it, go back to question one. Why can't I worship him right now? Why can't I be content? Why can't I trust? Why can't I quietly wait? What am I looking for? What am I trying to do? What am I trying to get? What am I, what am I assigning value to that's not Jesus and my salvation? And I think if we do this right, it looks very different than the world around us. But I also think if we try to do this right, it probably takes the rest of our lives to get any good at it. Whether you're 80 or whether you're 30, whatever time you've got left, I think you can spend trying to do this one thing. And at the end, if we're honest, we'll probably say, I still don't feel like I'm good at it that's what makes this so hard it's easy for me to stand up here and say just worship and trust god in all circumstances right that sounds good sounds easy but in reality i'm not sure it is as easy as we sometimes make it so let's trust in him let's seek him let's love him for what he has done and let's do this together to encourage one another to do this to live together to celebrate what he's doing to help one another to encourage one another to pray for one another as we seek to worship him at all times. You guys pray with me this morning. God, I come before you and I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done for us. God, I I thank you for just as we've gone through the book of Habakkuk, which has been challenging um, and surprising and beautiful and encouraging and Today, as we've seen the change in Habakkuk from asking questions of God, God, what are you doing? Where are you? To saying, I will quietly wait for whatever God wants to do, whatever it looks like, even if I'm starving to death, even if there's no food coming, I can celebrate and rejoice. So God, I pray that you would help us to have that same attitude, to have that same picture of you, to love you that much, We can say, I have salvation. I have strength from God. I have a plan from God, and I just follow that. And he's got everything else covered. I don't need to worry. I don't need to stress. I don't need to have my stomach churning. Because he's got it covered. So God, help us to remember that you are the only one who is worthy of our worship. You are the only one who is holy and can help us become holy. And that we give you our hearts, we give you our souls, we give you our lives so that we can worship you in all things. It's in your name I pray. Amen.